been with us the last couple of weeks. Uh, we've been in Joshua, and just as Travis said, I have threatened the summarizing fly over some of these chapters as far as dividing the land is concerned, but I have not yet done that, okay? So uh, there's just too many good things in this book of Joshua that we've just had to pause and camp out on. And uh, for example, last week we uh, stepped into the story of Caleb. Caleb at 85 years old, he said, um, Joshua, I, I need this challenge. I know I'm 85 years old, but the Lord is not done with me yet. Give me that mountain. Give me the hill country where the Anakim are so I could go defeat them. And so once again, one last time, one last ride, I could see the power of God going before me and working through me. And that's exactly what he did at the ripe age of 85 years old. He was still uh, going after what the Lord had before him. And so, now, it was a, a great message, but then uh, afterwards, uh, my big takeaway was this. I said, if I'm still around at 85 years old, I'm going to get a tattoo. And, uh, and you could still do it. I looked online. There's a cat that was 104 years old that got a tattoo. So I don't know what the age cutoff is. But if I'm still around at 85 years old, I'm going to get a tattoo. And it's going to be Joshua 14:11 uh, that states, I am just as strong today as I was the day that Moses sent me. Okay. And so we talked about that last week. And then Travis this past week, he held me to that. He's like, so, all right, were you serious? Because if you're serious, we're going to do that. You're going to be 85 and I'm going to be 74. Okay, and we're going to get a tattoo. And then he sent me this. Right. It's a, it's a calendar invite for 2060. Okay. <laughs> Anyone else have a calendar invite for 2060? So we're going to go get arm sleeves on that day. So you guys are welcome to join us on that day. Um, there's a guy here in first service. He did have an arm sleeve. And I said, you're going to have to get a leg sleeve. So... But that's what we're going to do, and, uh, but today is the day that we are going to cruise through some chapters, okay? Six chapters, and I know for some that's a little bit hard to stomach. It's hard for me to stomach as well, and it's not that these chapters are not of great importance. Everything in God's Word is of great importance. All Scripture is God-breathed, you know, neustos, divinely inspired. We would ascribe to 2 Timothy 3.16 that all Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and training in righteousness that the man of God may uh, be complete, equipped for every good work. The Lord doesn't waste anything. Everything is for our edification. However, these next five chapters, they read as somewhat of a real estate contract. And so some of you guys might like to read through real estate contracts. I don't know what really kind of, you know, gets you going and what have you, but there are a lot of names and cities and land boundaries within these next five chapters. And now real estate boundaries are important because like think of for those of you that own a home or own land, if you purchase something, you kind of like go through that with a fine tooth cone, uh, comb because you want to find out where your boundaries are and what's on your land or what have you. And then maybe it's just me, but I remember our first home that we purchased and there's a dividing line in your lot, right? Where it's like, hey, this is my yard, this is your yard. And the guy just kept mowing like two to three feet into my yard. And so, and I, it wasn't cool, okay? So we had to have a conversation. So your real estate land boundaries might be very important as long as it's your real estate. But if it's someone else's real estate, it might not be quite as, in, as in important. And that's kind of what we arrive at with this. And so now rest assured, uh, there might be some weeks that we spend uh, a whole sermon just preaching through one verse. We did that a little bit in um, First Peter, and we commander the Lord's army uh, ways back. That was only three verses, but today is not that day. We're going through six chapters, folks, and I can't believe I'm saying that, but we're going to be doing this summarizing 
flyover. Now, I could step into each of these land boundaries and talk about the topography. I could step into all these names and uh, cities and uh, exegete out every one of those. But if I were to do that, we might actually be here until 2060, okay? So we're just going to fly on through these. And again, I'm only 20% Jewish, okay? And that means you guys don't need a 20% Jewish accent reading through all those names. You guys deserve much, much better. So here we go. Here's our our trusted map. And uh, if you have your Bibles, which I hope you do, you can go ahead and turn to chapter 15. And so what we're going to see here At the beginning of chapter 15 is the first land allotment on the west side, the west bank of the Sea of Galilee, the Jordan River, and the Dead Sea. And so if we remember, uh, the firstborn of all of the the sons of Jacob was Reuben. But Reuben was not given that birthright of the firstborn, uh, the double portion of the inheritance because of his sin of infidelity and uh, just his cover up with that. So, so Jacob actually gave this birthright, this uh, uh, double portion of the land inheritance, he gave it to uh, Joseph's two sons, uh, Manasseh or Manasseh or Ephraim or Ephraim. And so he gave it to Joseph's two sons. That's why we don't see a land allotment for Joseph. Okay. So, but what we see here is that because of Reuben's poor decisions, he was not given this land allotment, the first land allotment, but instead the first land allotment that went on the west side of the Jordan River went to Judah. And so Judah uh, was the largest tribe, and as we learned last week, that the largest tribe was given the largest amount of land. And, and then also the tribe of Judah were the first, was the first tribe to step into war and battle. And so, so these were a couple of other reasons why they were given uh, the first land allotment on the west bank of the Jordan River. But I would say um, most commentators would agree that the reason that they were given this first land allotment on the west side of the Jordan River, because in Genesis 49, Jacob gave Judah the strongest patriarchal blessing, saying, your brothers shall praise you and your father's sons shall bow, bow down before you. So this is chapter 15. If we recall, we also spent some time, uh, we looked ahead last week with Caleb and we looked ahead to this chapter. And remember, Caleb was so invigorated as far as what the Lord was doing. He didn't stop at Kiryat Erba as far as taking that hill country, the, the mountain full of the Anakim, the giants. He, he continued on past that and he, he went to the city of Devere. And he said, if anyone is going to take the city, as far as following my charge, I will give them my daughter's hand in marriage. And so now we don't need to spend a lot of time on this, but it's not a good thing when your nephew, your nephew doubles up as your son-in-law, right? And so we talked about the fact that this was the first incidence of kissing cousins. And so we don't need to revisit that. But in summary, chapter 15 consists of the boundaries of the land of Judah, the aforementioned story of Caleb, and then this fairly exhaustive, probably the most exhaustive list of the cities uh, out of all of these chapters as far as dividing the land is concerned. And so we see something at the end of chapter 15 that we'll come back to here in a second. We see that the Jebusites, they were not driven out of the land. And so, and that folks is chapter 15, if you could believe that. And so, As we continue on to chapters 16 and 17, we now see the two land allotments of Joseph's two sons, 
Ephraim, and uh, Manasseh, or Manasseh. And so again, with Reuben not receiving the double portion of the firstborn, uh, having it uh, given to these two sons of Joseph, um, we see um, that there, Joseph, uh, there's not a land allotment for Joseph, and that's what I was trying to say. But the, the tribe of Reuben, Gad, and half the tribe of Manasseh, if we recall, they settled on, on the east side of the Jordan River. And uh, this was even after the uh, admonishment and discouragement of Moses to say, don't do this. Because if we remember, these were the tribes that uh, first were influenced by the neighboring cities and they were the tribes that were first taken into captivity by the neighboring cities as well. And so what we see in chapter 16, that half of the tribe of or chapter 17, half of the tribe of Manasseh was on this east side, and now we see the other half uh, given their land as far as their land boundaries, the cities within the land, and the individuals in which it was given to. And then chapter 16, we see the same thing for the tribe of Ephraim, which is right there. So now this chapter, both of these chapters, chapter 16 and 17, they both conclude with the tribes complaining. And specifically in chapter 17, we see that they, uh, both the tribes of Manasseh and Ephraim are complaining to Joshua saying that there are still Canaanites in the land and these Canaanites have chariots of iron. And so Joshua, he kind of kicks it back to them and says, you have numerous people, you have great power, you go back into this land and drive them out. And so we see this, that there was a remnant, that there's a remaining portion of Canaanites that were uh, still in the land. And this is how Joshua concludes chapters 15, 16, and 17. And so we're going to draw some practical uh, implications from this premise that there, there was still this remnant of the Canaanites, this, uh, these wicked people groups that were still in the promised land. And so what would we arrive at with this? And so this is something that we could say is, uh, as it uh, equates to our life in Christ and maybe sin issues, lingering sin that is not dealt with, lingering sin that is not dealt with will come back to harm you. And so here in this instance, the Lord made it abundantly clear that all of these people in the promised land, the land of Canaan, were to be destroyed or, or, or wiped out or driven from the land. But this isn't what took place. Because we remember that these, the Amorites were a wicked people. You know, he didn't drive out the people. The Lord waited because he said that the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. But now, as we see, it was complete. Uh, the wickedness had reached a threshold where the Lord sent Joshua and the Israelites in there to essentially judge the land, to eradicate all of these wicked individuals from the land so they would not influence the people of Israel as they lived there. But it took place but not all the way. And so there was still some individuals left, as we see at the end of chapters 15, 16, and 17. They became comfortable with these inhabitants of the land. And it was these individuals that would rise up. It was these individuals that would influence the Israelites. And it, was these, it were these individuals that would eventually would take the Israelites into captivity. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. Uh, the enemy in which they did not drive out, the, the enemy in which they did not uh, just 
deliver out from their land and, and deal with was the enemy that eventually later down the road would defeat them. And this is a picture of what the Israelites did not do. And oftentimes this can serve as a picture of what we do not do. There are things in our life that the Lord has made it abundantly clear that they are not to be there as a follower of Jesus. He has made it abundantly clear through his word, through circumstances, through events that have taken place in our life, through the conviction of the Holy Spirit. These are things in our life that the Lord has called us to put off with the old self. But there are things in our life that oftentimes we just allow to exist. We somewhat make nice with. And what takes place, as we see here, the sin that is not dealt with 100%, oftentimes is that same sin that will eventually come back and harm you. And so don't delay. Deal with it today. And that's the challenge for today. Kill, eradicate, drive out the enemy so they are not able, so the devil is not able to get a foothold in your life. What are we told in Romans 13, 14? But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh uh, to not gratify its desires. So I, I feel like these few verses at the end of chapter 15, 16, and 17, it, it provided somewhat of a lament for Joshua. Uh, Joshua had done miraculous wonders through the Lord, but I feel like why would he put this in here? And he probably was looking back and say, mm, I really wish I would have been 100% obedient to obey what the Lord had said. And so I feel like this is somewhat of a lament, and that's why those three verses are there at the end of these three chapters, somewhat of a sobering insight. In chapter 18, it begins with Joshua kind of throwing things back to the remaining seven tribes, saying that they have not been given their land allotment because there's a requirement, and this requirement was that they would go scout out the land, that they would take a report of this land and then come back, and they had not done so yet. And so Joshua was slightly admonishing them for procrastinating and doing so, as we see in verses 3 and 4 of chapter 18. It states this, So Joshua said to the people of Israel, How long will you put off going in to take possession of the land? which the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given you. Provide three men from each tribe, and I will send them out that they may set out and go up and down the land. They shall write a description of it and with it a view to their inheritances and then come to me. And so what we see in chapter 18, that these three men from each tribe were appointed to go survey the land so they could give a report, and then from here they would be given their inheritances. And this is what Joshua did. He, he cast by lot, and they were given their uh, remaining um, portions of land. And so, so the rest of chapter 18 and all of chapter 19 is this overview of these tribal allotments on the west side of the Jordan River. Again, we see a Judah in the right direction. We see Judah. Uh, we see Benjamin. We see Simeon. We, we see Ephraim. We see Manasseh. We see Yisachar. We see Zebulun. We see Naphtali. And we see Ashur. And we see uh, Dan. Dan's the easiest one to pronounce, obviously. Why can't they all be like that? But finally, at the end of this chapter of 19, chapter 19, we see Joshua's finally given his 
land inheritance. And isn't that just a beautiful picture of the type of leader that Joshua was? Leaders eat last. After all of this land allotment had been distributed, it was finally now at this point where Joshua came in and accepted his own allotment. And so it states in Joshua 19, 49 through 50. When they had finished distributing the several territories of the land as inheritances, the people of Israel gave an inheritance among them to Joshua, the son of Nun. By command of the Lord, they gave him the city that he asked, Timnath Era, in the hill city of Ephraim, and he rebuilt the city and settled in it. And again, this is just a beautiful picture of who Joshua was. For those of um, you that may be familiar or have done some inductive study as far as this land of uh, Timnath Era, it, it, it means abundant provision, but that was not the case. It was somewhat of a desolate land. But even so, Joshua looked at this somewhat of a desolate land as abundant provision. So even to the end, we see uh, just this character of Joshua being so thankful and grateful for everything that the Lord has given him. And so we see at the end of chapter 19, it states, So they finished dividing up the land. They finished dividing up the land, and how fittingly it fits with us today, that also means that we are finished dividing up the land. And so great job hanging with me through those uh, five chapters. And I do apologize. That's typically not how we uh, run through scripture here. But again, there was some purpose and reasoning behind that. But what I really wanted to get to today was the blood avenger. Okay, that's really where I was going. And so everyone's like, oh, I just got everyone's attention. I said blood avenger, right? It's really about the cities of refuge. But in here is this uh, talk about the avenger of blood. Now, it's not a Marvel character, but we're going to go ahead and jump in here. And as we read the passage, you're going to find there's lots of things that need explaining. So we'll spend some time doing that before we jump into the practical implications of Joshua chapter 20. So here we go. Joshua chapter 20, verses 1 through 9 here. This is what the Word of God has to say for us. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Say to the people of Israel, Appoint the cities of refuge of which I spoke to you through Moses, that the manslayer who strikes any person without intent or unknowingly may flee there. They shall be for you a city, uh, be for you a refuge from the avenger of blood. He shall flee to one of these cities and shall stand at the entrance of the gate of the city and explain his case to the elders of that city. Then they shall take him into the city and give him a place, and he shall remain with them. And if the avenger of blood pursues him, they shall not give up the manslayer into his hand because he struck his neighbor unknowingly and he did not hate him in the past. And he shall remain in that city until he has stood before the congregation for judgment, until the death of him who is high priest at the time. Then the manslayer may return to his own town and his own home, to the town from which he fled. So they set apart Kadesh in Galilee in the hill country of Naphtali and Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim and Kiriath Erba that is Hebron in the hill city of Judah and beyond the Jordan east of Jericho they appointed Bazir in the wilderness on the tableland from the tribe of Reuben and Ramoth in Gilead from the tribe of Gad and Galan and Bashan from the t- tribe of Menasheh. And there were the cities designated for all the people of Israel and for the stranger sojourning among them that anyone who killed a person without intent could flee there so that he might not die by the hand of the avenger of blood until he stood before the congregation. Now, 
Like I said, there's some things that beg some explanation here in that passage, and that's what we're going to jump into right now. So the first question is this, why were these cities actually established in the first place? And well, we have to go back all the way to Numbers 35, where the Lord tells Moses that he is to establish these six cities, the cities of refuge. And three of these cities were to be found on the east bank of the Jordan River. And then three of these cities were to be found on the west bank of the Jordan River. And the reasoning behind that is so these individuals that were guilty of involuntary manslaying, they could uh, flee there within the course of a day or two. So three on each side of the Jordan River. And the second question would be this, what was the purpose of these cities? And again, this would be um, individuals that were responsible for accidental or involuntary act, the accidental or involuntary act of taking one's life. And this term we would arrive at in today's judicial system would be involuntary manslaughter. So I think most of us are familiar with that term. Now, what we're going to try to do here is to provide a little bit of light as far as what the Lord is trying to convey some 3,000 years ago and how this really stacks up and overlays as far as uh, modern times, and then really uh, taking in the totality uh, of biblical text, not the totality in its full, but just some general highlights as far as what God's word has to say and speak into this topic of murder. And so to start, there's probably three forms that we would arrive at, and the first one would be premeditated, unjustified, deliberate, willful, murder, right? This is the taking of one's life. And, and then a next category would be involuntary or uh, accidental manslaughter. And, and so, and even within this, there is uh, this thing that exists between justified and unjustified taking or killing uh, of an individual. And so the distinctions are made to some degree in God's word. And so a good place to start is obviously Exodus uh, 2013, which is the sixth commandment, and it states, you shall not murder. Now, it's also interesting to note in the King James Version, it states, thou shalt not kill, okay? But we have to look at as far as what does the Hebrew manuscript, what is the word that is used here? And so all other translations say after the King James, as far as the sixth commandment is concerned, it states, you shall not murder. And so this Hebrew word is rotsak, rotsak. And this means to murder or to slay. So murder or to slay. And that's the word that's used as far as uh, the sixth commandment is concerned. You shall not rot suck. And this is contrasted with another word that we find in scripture as it pertains to killing. And as it pertains to our chapter today, uh, Joshua 20. And this word is nacha. And this means to smite or to destroy or to kill. And so just to provide some categories here, Ratzach is used for premeditated, with intent, unjustified murder. The, the thing that you're going to go away for for a long time. You're going to get life sentences or maybe you will face capital punishment. And then for today's text, the word that we see is nacha. For killing, that would be involuntary or accidental manslaughter. Or the, the term that we use in our text today is actually man-slaying. And so now as far as today's judicial system, there's some blurred lines with all of this. We're not going to specifically be able to subcategorize first, second, 
third degree murder or voluntary or involuntary manslaughter under Ratzach and Nacha. We're not going to be able to perfectly subcategorize all of those um, things underneath these two definitions. It might be a good thesis paper or capstone project for those of you guys that got a little bit too much free time on your hands. Uh, or maybe you're at that place in life. But I think it would really be a good paper to write. But I am not a lawyer, no, nor do I pretend to play one on TV. But what we're going to talk about today is what constitutes right now, what constitutes the taking of one's life from a biblical perspective? What constitutes justifiable killing? And I, I think that's an important question that we have to answer. Now, just because you took someone's life involuntarily or um, accidentally or voluntarily that is justified. Now that doesn't necessarily mean that there won't be items of consequence because there are going to be aspects of negligence and then there's also going to be uh, just this aspect which I think is the umbrella. What is the motive behind it? Because motive matters. Essentially just even take it one step further is this. How do I arrive if I have taken someone's life or uh, that I'm responsible for manslaughter or um, any of these things? How, how do I arrive at the factor whether or whether or not am I breaking the sixth commandment? So really the question is, again, Ratzak versus Nacha. And what are the reasons for it? And so let's look at first what constitutes justifiable killing. And I'm sorry if it's a little graphic today for all the kiddos in the room. I didn't do anything. But there's, there's nothing graphic about this. We're just talking about what takes place when someone's life is taken. And so, so the first one is accidental. And so this is the example that's used in our text today. So the accidental death of someone that may have been the result of your own actions or the lack thereof. Uh, maybe it took place under your watch. And um, there's examples of this that take place. There was no um, malicious intent or no willful intent that this accident took place. And I would imagine in, in that day and age when Joshua 20 was written, there was plenty of farming accidents or work-related accidents. They didn't have OSHA or safety teams back then. And so, so what would happen uh, if someone was actually uh, killed or uh, their life was taken. And, and so again, uh, this is accidental. There was no intent to take this person's life, but it, it did happen. And so the second um, instance of uh, justifiable killing would be self-defense. And, and so I think this is an obvious one. If you are in a life-threatening situation where someone is seeking to harm you or to take your own life and you Take someone, owns, take someone else's life in self-defense, this would be a justified homicide, a reason for nacha. And so Exodus 22, 2, it actually covers two, kills two birds with one stone as far as self-defense and also home invasion. It states this, if a thief is found breaking in and is struck so that he dies, there shall be no blood guilt for him. And then the third example of justifiable killing is this, an act of war or law enforcement. Romans 13.4 is very clear on the responsibility of law enforcement to carry out justice to the wrongdoer. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is a servant of God an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. 
Again, this is just an example of how we as followers of Jesus should fall underneath governing authority unless that governing authority, as we talked about way back in 1 Peter, requires us to sin before God, right? And that's, you'll have to listen to that message because I'm not going to open up that can of worms today. But we really did answer that question way back in 1 Peter. And so, obviously, justifiable killing in the midst of war. We see that. And we, all we have to do is look at the book of Joshua and all throughout history that um, stepping into war with other countries. I, I think the thing that brings a little bit of contention is what constitutes crimes of war, as we have recently seen as far as Russia and Ukraine. What really constitutes those crimes of war underneath uh, warring countries? And then the fourth um, instance of, of justifiable killing is capital punishment. And so this is the death penalty for a very heinous, cold-blooded act of murder. And it is the premise that your life is to be taken because of what you did in taking somebody else's life with willful, malicious murder. And so this really leads us into where we're going to spend a little bit of time at as far as Joshua 20 and the need for a blood avenger. Now we have to remember that there is no specific law enforcement, there is no specific judicial entities that oversaw um, conflict or or punishment at this time. What took place is that justice and conflict would have to be resolved through the governing elders or the Levitical priests that were adhering to Levitical law. But what did exist during this time was this law of exact retribution. And so we see this later, and it would be referred to as, in Latin, lex talionis, okay? And so, and this would be the law of exact retribution. Essentially, this states an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, life for life, blood for blood. And where would we arrive at that? Well, we see this in multiple places throughout the Old Testament. Exodus 21, 12 states this, He who strikes a man so that he dies shall surely be put to death. Genesis 9, 6, whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he is, he made man. Uh, Amago Dei. Leviticus 24, 19 through 21. If anyone injures his neighbor as he has done, it shall be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, Whatever injury he has given a person shall be given to him. Whoever kills an animal shall make it good, and whoever kills a person shall be put to death. Now, this law of exact retaliation, it actually existed, so people didn't take revenge and retribution and vindication um, to the next level. Uh, It says, Basically, uh, you know, I'm going to, it's going to be an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But that's not actually how our nature works, is it? If someone wrongs us, our revenge and retaliation is going to go typically to a whole other level. That's our sinful bent. And so, you know, if I, you knock out one of my teeth, well, you're going to be drinking through a straw, right? Or if you take out a family member, all we have to look to is any mobster movie, Don Corleone is going to be taking out everybody, right? And so this is kind of what we see, and this is kind of how we're built. It's just just our sinful bent towards revenge and retaliation. And this law of exact retaliation or retribution, the lex talionis, exhibited, so it served to mitigate revenge and retaliation. The score is now settled, 
evenly. The score is now settled justly. But now the person to carry out this is referred to here as the avenger of blood. The person that's to carry out lex talionis. And so it states in verses 2 and 3. Say to the people of Israel, appoint the cities of refuge of which I spoke to you through Moses, that the manslayer who strikes any person without intent or unknowingly may flee there. They shall be for you a refuge from the avenger of blood. Now, even more so, the interesting thing about this word, avenger of blood or blood avenger, this Hebrew word is Gael. Now, we also see this Hebrew word Gael in another very well-known portion of Scripture, and it's found in Ruth 4. And for those who are familiar with Ruth 4, we see the widow Ruth being redeemed by her kinsman redeemer. Now, remember, there's two of them in there, and, and Boaz was the one that stepped into redeeming Ruth. But when we see this word redeemer, kinsman redeemer, it is the same word that we see here for blood avenger, and that is Gael. And so as we know from the book of Ruth, Boaz marries, Ruth redeems her. They have a son named Obed, and they're found in the lineage of Jesus Christ. But again, the same word, Gael, who is to be the kinsman redeemer, is one in the same as far as the avenger of blood. This individual who acted as a kinsman redeemer, uh, what they took place, what they were responsible for, is a, it's a male relative who um, held the responsibility to act upon a family member or a close personal friend who is in need. And they would go in and redeem or take care of this person or they would take care of uh, a piece of property. And so they would serve as that, but also, again, they would serve as the one who enacted uh, Lex Talionis, who, who if there was a, either a premeditated willful murder or if there was an involuntary accidental manslaying, it was still the Gael's responsibility to enact justice on behalf of the family, regardless if it was Nacha or regardless if it was Ratzak. Okay? And so hopefully there's a little bit of clarity behind all of that. But regardless, it, even if it was accidental or involuntary, it was still an eye for an eye, tooth for tooth, blood for blood, life for life. And it was this blood avenger's responsibility. So now you could see why there was a need for a city of refuge. Because as we see in our text today, if you were responsible for involuntary manslaughter or manslaying, or I would even imagine justifiable killing here, then you could find safety in these cities. The, the ruling elders would let you come into the city, they would hear your case, and they would allow you to stay in the city for as long as the high priest lived. When that high priest died, you could now go to the city in which you fled from. But if you were to leave the city, there would be no protection. There would be no asylum from the blood avenger, from the Gael. It was indeed a safe house where no killing could take place. And so we see in verses 4 and 5, he shall flee to one of these cities and shall stand at the entrance of the gate. This is talking about the manslayer of the city and explain his case to the elders of that city. Then they shall take him into the city and give him a place and he shall remain with them. 
And if the avenger of blood pursues them, they shall not give up the manslayer into his hand because he struck his neighbor unknowingly and did not hate him in the past. And so where do we land with all of this? Well, as you're going to be able to see, as we see time and time again throughout the Old Testament, as we have seen so many times in the book of Joshua, there are some significant practical implications for us today. Because these things that take place in the Old Testament, they serve as a type, a copy, a foreshadowing of our life in Jesus Christ. And so let's just look at this. Refuge. The definition of refuge is a place or condition of being, uh, being safe or sheltered from harm or danger. A place or condition of being safe or sheltered from pursuit or danger. And so what we see here is these cities of refuge indeed provide for us as followers of Jesus some very significant things. First of all, this city of refuge in Jesus Christ protects us. What does it protect us from? Who does it protect us um, from? And the first thing, it's from, it protects us from the raging devil who, who seeks to kill, steal, and destroy If you are in Christ, you have this protection to varying levels on this world that we live in. You have eternal protection in the kingdom of God from the devil who seeks to kill, steal, and destroy. Another thing that we have protection from in the city of refuge, which is Jesus Christ, is the guilt and weight of our sin. Christ's death on the cross, a substitutionary atonement, his life for ours. We now have been set free. We now can live in the freedom, not to abuse the freedom, but to live in the freedom that we indeed have in Jesus Christ. He who the Son has set free is free indeed. And we could live in that freedom because we are in the city of refuge in Jesus Christ. And the third area that we have as protection is from the imminent wrath of God. There is indeed a price to be paid, a penalty to be atoned for, a blood atonement. There is indeed a substitutionary transaction that needs to take place. And this has taken place through the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. And so our big takeaway is this, point number three, know who your city of refuge is. Know who your city of refuge is. Now, although it's a type, a copy, a foreshadowing of our life in Christ, it is not a perfect example. And why? Because these individuals that sought the city of refuge, that were responsible for involuntary manslaughter or manslaying, there was a level of innocence that existed here. But we do not provide and come into this equation with a level of innocence. We indeed have sinned. As fallen individuals in this life, we have committed sin that separates us from an eternal holy God. And again, there's a price that must be paid. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. But make no mistake, make no mistake, apart from Christ... There is no refuge. 
apart from the blood that was shed on Calvary 2,000 years ago, there is no safe place for man. There is no protection outside of these city walls, outside of the city of refuge, which is Jesus Christ. And just as the city of refuge was the only place that the manslayer could flee to for protection, Jesus Christ is the only place that we can go to from protection, from a raging devil, from the guilt and condemnation of our sin, and from the imminent wrath of God. It is the only place that we can go to to protect ourselves from the retribution of the blood avenger, the Gael. And these gates to this city are open. They're open to all who would call and look to Jesus Christ and repent and say, you, Jesus, are my Savior. I recognize you and come under you as Lord of my life. And those gates are open to whosoever calls upon his name, they shall be saved. He is a rampart for our soul. He is a refuge. Only Christ Only Christ can provide this refuge. It is to him alone that we must look to. It is to him alone that we must run to. And that's point number four. Run. Run to our city of refuge, which is Jesus Christ. We are told this explicitly in Hebrews 6.18. We who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. Praise be to God. Having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, what are we told in Psalm 18 to? The Lord is my rock my fortress, my deliverer, my God, my rock, in whom I take refuge, my shield, the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. And just as we see in verse 6 that the manslayer could not return home until after the high priest has died, we too have a high priest that has died. And because of his death on the cross, we can return to our eternal home or we can arrive at our eternal home that has been provided for us through the death of Jesus Christ. And so I want us to leave with these two things. Number one, take the time to rejoice in the great love that was poured out for us. His substitutionary atonement on the cross is for you, for me, all those who call upon the name of Jesus. And that should just be uh, how our whole life is filtered through. Lord, I am so thankful for what you did on the cross. I have been set free. I am redeemed because of your death. And number two, may we recognize that this city of refuge exists for a purpose. Apart from these city walls, apart from the the rampart of our souls of Jesus Christ, there exists no refuge. So if you find yourself at a place where you think you're safe, apart from Jesus Christ, well, don't bet on it. Don't wait for that day 
when the gatekeeper says, and it's too late, and the gatekeeper says, depart from me, I never knew you. Don't you wait for that day. The city of refuge is available to whoever calls upon his name as Lord and Savior. And as we celebrate communion today, ushers, you can go ahead and come on up. And as we celebrate communion today, I want us to take some time to embrace the blood that was shed. The penalty that was paid, the cup of wrath that Christ bore on the cross. We once stood condemned, dead in the trespasses and sin, but we no longer stand condemned. You could start passing. We no longer stand condemned. We stand redeemed. We stand redeemed. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And for that, we need to spend some time just glorifying the name of Jesus today for what he's done on the cross. That we stand before a holy God redeemed. He looks to us. He sees his son imputed in us and he rejoices. And may we stand in that freedom today. So as we take a time of contemplation to reflect and confess and repent and and just have this overwhelming degree of thankfulness and, and praise. Better is one day in your courts and a thousand elsewhere. Lord, whatever trials, whatever tribulations, whatever uphill battles that I have to face, following after you and being with you and being in your city of refuge is so much better than anything else this world has to offer. So we're going to take some time to contemplate these things. I'll come back up. We'll take communion together and Ralphie will lead us. Texan will lead us through one last.